Uh, so today I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 24 and uh, work through uh, this passage of Scripture uh, with you. The last several weeks we've been looking at behavior that is worthy of God. And we described it in different ways, tracing the different themes, I think, that Paul the Apostle established to the church of Thessalonica. There were five major categories that we've already seen, or five uh, qualities or commitments that believers must demonstrate if their behavior would be worthy of the God that they serve. Okay, and so I list them out here just in case you, you missed a few weeks over the summer or something like that. It involves holiness, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He then says it also includes brotherly love and our commitment to one another. It requires hope in the return of Christ to rapture the church. It includes diligence for the unexpected day of the Lord. The day of the Lord could come at any moment. And then uh, finally, last week we saw as well that behavior worthy of God includes right relationships. If you remember last week, we looked through the way that we are to relate to our leadership in the church, our commitment to honor and respect them. But then Paul goes beyond that to our relationship with each other, and he highlights a, a few different other ways we should relate to the body. body. He talks about how we should uh, minister to those of us who are idle or faint-hearted or uh, those who are weak in the text, and how we should come alongside of them and help them. And foundationally, we said there was a relationship that Paul was concerned with in verses 16 through 18, where he talked about the way we relate to God. We should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. And so we, we looked at the importance of our relationship with God, our fundamental relationship that enables all the others. We, we must have right relationships if we're going to live worthy of God. Today, uh, we're going to look at something I think that will be very encouraging to you. Uh, the list of things we've seen in chapters 4 and 5 is quite daunting. I mean, if there was just one of these to work on, that would be enough. But there are five major areas. While it can be overwhelming to work on all of these things at the same time in our Christian experience, Paul gives us reasons for optimism, or really a reason, for optimism in the text we're going to look at today. Look at verse 19. Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I'm going to take this passage today. I think there are really two sections to it. But both sections have to do with the way we relate to God. If you look at verse 19, he's talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We're not to quench the Spirit. And then when you get into the second section, starting in verse 23, he talks about the God of peace at the beginning of verse 23. Then he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse 23. He concludes this section with, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. That's 
God the Father. This passage is about the way believers relate to God. And so if I'm going to give a sixth category to these verses, or sixth commitment or quality, it's this, that behavior worthy of God requires divine enablement. Divine enablement. In other words, there's no way that any human being could fulfill the list of qualities that we've already seen without God the Father helping us to do so. And so in our final sermon, we'll look and see or examine just very briefly how Paul describes God's role in our spiritual growth. But let me give you just one brief illustration to to help you see how I think is going on in this passage. Uh, Do you remember growing up and being overwhelmed with a difficult job that someone gave you before? Let's imagine that you're a teenager or something, and your father comes to you and says he wants you to mow and trim the entire yard. Remember the first time you got a job like that? In Pennsylvania growing up, we had four and a half acres in the country, and most of it my dad wanted mowed. Remember the first time he came to me and said, Brent, I want you to mow everything, I want you to trim everything. I got involved into the process and started doing it, but I was quickly overwhelmed. I didn't really know much of what I was doing. He had taught me different things about the assignment before. But I got into it a certain amount of time, and I was overwhelmed. And that's when my father actually, and I think this was his plan all along, he actually, after I kind of tried it for an hour or so, he came out and he helped me. And actually, he did all of the hard things. Uh, there was a certain part of my, my dad's yard, even to this day, it's on the side of a hill. It's all on a hill. And so he had a certain way of mowing that grass where he'd sit. He's basically sitting on the fender, you know, the, the upper fender of the mower so he wouldn't tip over. And he, he did that part. He trimmed the, the hills that were hard to do. In one sense, I think that as Paul is describing all these things that believers must do, he is going to end by highlighting the fact that God is the one who comes along and who enables us in the process to do these things. And so that's how I see these verses. This section then will appear in two sections about the way believers relate to God in spiritual growth. The first one I would say like this. Uh, First, we must not quench the Holy Spirit. We must not quench the Holy Spirit. And I think that it, it, uh, what is going on in verses 19 through 22, you have several sentences here, three sentences or four, but I think it's best to see them uh, in one paragraph. Now, most Bibles don't put them in one paragraph, uh, English Bibles. They divide it up into separate things. But I think that these commands are all related to each other. And so I want to walk through this, and I think the main point is we must not quench the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, as we talk about quenching the Holy Spirit, I think one that answers, one of the first things we need to answer is, what does Paul mean when he says quench? What is that? Because that's a word that maybe we use about, like, thirst today, but we don't use it much in English anymore. The Greek term, I think, was primarily used because of the widespread association between God's Spirit and fire. Uh, I think going back, even, you know, cloven tongues of fire and that, that sort of stuff. 
in Acts. The word quench means to extinguish, put out, stifle, or smother. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was one of the things for which Paul was most thankful for in the Thessalonian assembly. And so he warns them, do not do anything that stifles or extinguishes the work of the Spirit in the church. I think Paul understood and realized that their whole story involved the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. You remember in chapter 1, he said that you uh, came to God through the gospel, but not only in word or power, but also in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so from the very beginning, their story has revolved around the ministry of the Spirit of God. He performed a significant role in their life, and Paul's point here is, as he looks to the future, he says they must not suppress the activity of the Spirit of God. But that should lead us to question, well, how, do you, how does one do that? I don't want to be guilty of stifling or quenching the Spirit, so, you know, pastor, tell me how not to do that. And uh, so, so from my perspective, as you keep reading in the text, the very next verse helps us to see the situation that Paul is addressing. Look at verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. So specifically, the Thessalonian church was not to hinder the Spirit's ministry by being critical of prophecies. Like, this is the situation that Paul's primarily addressing. I think that perhaps there's some of the Thessalonian church who hated words of prophetic utterances in the church. And so Paul says, make sure you, you don't do that. Well, once we see that, that should lead us to a whole host of questions here about how we relate to this, right? Okay, so like I'm reading through this and I'm thinking, okay, there are two main questions that I have about this passage. Okay, and so what I want to do is I just want to answer the questions I had, and maybe some of you have them. Maybe. First question is, what is prophecy? Right? So, so what is prophecy? And uh, I want to try to address that with you. I think in the first century, there was an ongoing work of God's Spirit where he would lead believers to give prophetic words to the church, to speak prophetic words to the church. This was new revelation given from God to the church through people gifted to give words of prophecy. Help us better understand the nature of prophecy, though I'll just make three very concise statements. So uh, in your notes, you've got a question, what is prophecy? And you could write down these three statements and think about it, compare it with Scripture, Make sure it's what you think and what you believe, because people believe different things about prophecy. Okay, but I just want to summarize to you what I think is a good view of prophecy. Okay? First, you need to know that prophecy is a gift of the Spirit of God. The simple statement, we start there. It is a gift of the Spirit of God. Prophecy is found in every spiritual gift list in the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14. Paul makes a big point of it there. It's found in Romans 12. There are just three verses in Romans 12, verses 16 uh, 
actually just forgot the verses. Three verses, just you, you look them up, Romans 12, uh, there, but in those three verses, there's prophecy mentioned, and also in Ephesians 4. Just two verses in Ephesians 4, and prophecy is listed there. So when Paul talks about gifts, he always lists prophecy. Okay, and even in our text, there's a close connection between spirit and prophecy. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies. Okay, so it's a spiritual gift. I would also say this about prophecy. Number two, what is prophecy? Number two, prophecy is different from both preaching and teaching and tongues. It's a different spiritual gift. Preaching and teaching are listed in the gifts, and tongue speaking is listed in the gifts. Whatever prophecy is, it's different than either one of those. You say, well, how do you know that, preacher? And that's a good question. Uh, I would say one reason is because in your New Testament Bible, women were allowed to prophesy in the church. They were just supposed to cover their heads. That's found in 1 Corinthians 11. Whereas in other texts in the New Testament, it, women are for, strictly forbidden from preaching or doing the work of pastoral ministry in the church. Do you get it? So I'm saying it's different than preaching or teaching. Okay. In that, one of the ways you can demonstrate that is women were allowed to prophecy. They were not allowed to preach or teach men in the assembly. Okay. Now, another way I would demonstrate this difference is, from my perspective, prophecy involved giving new revelation to the church that they hadn't had before. Teaching and preaching involved commenting on revelation that had already been given. Okay, it's bringing clarity to, it's pronouncing words that God had already given to the assembly. Okay, so prophecy, new revelation, preaching, teaching, explaining revelation that's been given. It's different than tongues in that as I study the New Testament, prophecy was new revelation given in the natural language of the speaker and hearer. People could understand it clearly, whereas tongues needed an interpreter. Okay, and, and we went through all of this in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and I don't want to just descend down to the depths where I lose everyone here today. But I'll say this, prophecy is different than preaching and teaching. It's different than tongue speaking. Different than those gifts. And, and so I think that from the Old New Testament, prophecy involved getting a direct word of God into the life of the hearers that would greatly challenge them regarding their sin or their past without anyone revealing it to the prophet other than God himself. It's miraculous. It might involve uncovering the secrets of the hearts of people or even revealing something about the future. And so this is a gift of prophecy. Then I'll make one, one other statement about what is prophecy. So there were three concise statements I want to give you. Third, while prophecy will resurface during the tribulation period, the New Testament teaches the eventual cessation of prophecy during our age. So I think that the New Testament teaches that the gift of prophecy would eventually stop. Okay, you say, well, where do you see that? You could write down 1 Corinthians 13. I would also use Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 to teach that. Ephesians 2 and 4 
you have apostles and prophets laying the foundation of the early church. I think once that foundation was laid, there are no longer any apostles today and there are no longer any prophets other than words of false prophecy. Okay, so I've given you a lot to think about here and you need to think about it. You need to read those passages of Scripture and see if that's where you come out. So I think in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul acknowledged that one day prophecies would come to an end when the perfect happened. Okay, so that's the first question I had is, what is prophecy? And that's how I would answer it. The second question is, well, what do we do about this command not to hate prophecies then? Okay, so if, if Pastor Ray, if you think there are no prophetic, true prophetic utterances being given today, what are we to do with this? And uh, are we guilty of quenching the Spirit by, by that line of thinking I just gave you? Uh, matter of fact, one commentator I was reading this week says that we are guilty of doing just that. His name is Ben Witherington, and he said this. He said, short of the second coming, Paul expects prophecy to be a valid and useful spiritual gift. These cessationist folk or the people who think that it's stopped, might do well to listen what Paul, to what Paul says about quenching the Spirit and despising prophecies. I'm taking some time to walk through this because this is a very important issue and thought for us to consider in our culture and in the city in which we live. My response to that would say what we are doing is we are not hating or despising prophecies. Instead, we are considering the whole counsel of Scripture and what the Scriptures say about the gift when we evaluate prophecy. And we are testing modern prophecy to find that it is unreliable, not giving new revelation from God. Although much controversy exists about present day and prophecies, there is one sure word of prophecy that we can rest very confidently upon. That is a prophecy revealed in the Old and New Testament Scripture, the very words of God for us. Okay? So, that's the situation. Now, notice what Paul gives them as the solution here. Verse 21. But test everything. I think he continues to address the way the Thessalonians should examine all things, including prophetic utterances that were to be given in the church. They are to test or examine all of these things. Where test means to weigh carefully or to sift it. And believers in the early church were to evaluate the reliability of prophecies. Now, you might ask, how could they do that? And I think my answer is twofold. One of the ways they would evaluate a prophetic utterance that someone would give in the church would be God also gave a gift to certain believers that weighed the prophecy. Okay, we looked at this in 1 Corinthians 14. There were certain people in the church who were gifted by God to be able to discern whether the prophetic utterance was true. I think the other way that they would do this, how they would wait, you know, someone gives this prophecy and you're thinking, is that right? Is that accurate? Is that true with the rest of Scripture? 
I think another way they would evaluate whether that was true would be by comparing it with the Scripture that had already been given. Comparing it with Scripture. And so men and women, this is one of the main reasons. I think, you know, although prophetic utterances have stopped, there are people today who are still commenting on revelation already given through preaching and teaching. And there are people claiming to give new revelation from God through prophecy and tongues. There's people claiming that. But Paul lays a responsibility on the church to evaluate these things and see if they hold true to Scripture. Test everything. And so honestly, this is one of the reasons we encourage you to know your Bible well. This is why we implore you to go text after text after text, to put it together, to understand it, to build your understanding so that you would be able to test or discern whether what someone is saying is from God is from him. So very practically, for our church today, I would just give you a few, a few pieces of guidance when it comes to this. I'd say, first, if someone is talking about Scripture, the first thing you should do is you should examine the passage itself that they are claiming supports what they're saying. If what he is saying is true in that text, you can hold it. If what he says does not cohere to the passage that he's talking about, you must reject it. Because our authority is not a person. It's not a man or a woman giving a word of prophecy. Our authority is Scripture. And so if what he or she is saying contradicts that passage, reject it. Now, many people don't have a particular passage in mind when they're pronouncing this gift of revelation for the church. And so another way that you can, t- you, you can be involved in this or examine this is, uh, so when they don't have one text to support what they say, compare what this man or woman says with the Bible. And if one passage of Scripture properly understood in its context contradicts what he or she is saying, then reject it. Reject it. Because our authority is the Scripture. I I am burdened for the church today. I think we are easily led astray in our world today for a multitude of different reasons. Sometimes someone is able to accurately explain how we feel about something or something that we're going through. And so because of that, we feel like, Okay, so they know how I feel. They must have a good answer to the problem or the issue. Okay, but just think about that for a second. That's not necessarily true. Just because someone can relate to the pain or the issue that I'm facing or that they have experienced it before as well does not necessarily mean that their answer to the problem comes from Scripture. And we know this in the medical arena, right? Someone could give you an x-ray or an MRI and diagnose the problem, but re- and that's part of the solution, right? We need to know what the problem is. But we also need to make sure that the treatment is accurate and the best plan. And so we need to be careful. Just because someone, you know, some Christian preacher or Christian professional explains how you feel and what you're doing does not mean that their solution is one that you should adhere to. 
You should compare their solution or their thoughts, their words to Scripture. And if it contradicts Scripture in any way, you should reject it. Because the Scripture, I mean, these are like God, these are God's words for us. Test everything. Examine everything. I think God gives us the Scriptures so that we might do that. And if you don't know the Scriptures well, then my fear is you will, you will easily be led astray by what people are saying. Now, fortunately, I don't think the Bible requires some sort of secret decoder glasses for you to wear. What it requires is that you have the Spirit of God within you, illumining you to understand the Scripture. So every person here who has the Spirit of God in them, who is a follower of Jesus Christ, can understand Scripture sufficiently enough to test everything. That leads to one last part of these imperatives, this first section, and that is the responsibility. Not only should we test everything, we should accept good practices and reject evil ones. Look at the end of verse 21. After having tested everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Okay, so after evaluating prophecies against Scripture, Paul says that the Thessalonians must hold fast or firmly to good, I think it's good prophetic utterances, and reject every form of evil when it comes to these spiritual gifts and what they were saying. And I think that this is important for us to, to do as well. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to examine everything. What we hear, what people say, is from God. We compare it with Scripture. And when we compare it with Scripture, we have twofold treatment of this, right? We reject the bad and we accept the good. And I think this is important for us to hear, especially in our age today, because we live in an age in a culture where toleration of different views is like a main guiding cultural value. Okay, and so just because someone holds it means we should be accepting of it. Okay, but I think we really need to examine the age in which we live and see what the scriptures say here. In the church, we must be careful that the idea of toleration does not lead us to accept evil. Evil thinking, evil practice, just because someone holds the position. For example, there are some Christians today that claim that the, that the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality was only for ancient times. There are some Christians who claim this. They say that modern science teaches that this is the way that some people are made today as well. Yet, the Scriptures nowhere give any indication that its teaching on the sinful practice of homosexuality is temporary 
or is only bound to culture in the first century. Nowhere. You see no indication of this. And so Scripture is our authority. And so we reject science theory or what people might hold because we're testing all things according to Scripture. We're examining it. And then we're holding fast to the good and we're rejecting the evil. When we went through 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, I, I laid out an analogy that helps me with this. I, I said, I think using Bible principles in, in, in matters of dispute uh, is a lot like using the Bible as a filter, like a water filter. Some water filters have different strands of material that are woven together to form a filter, and the way it works is the water comes through the strands of, filber, uh, of, of the filter, and the good is able to get through, and the bad, the impurity, is not able to. The same way I think Scripture guides us. It's our guide. And so Paul says, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That leads us to the second part of the passage. I just want to take about five minutes with you. I know I'm running just a little bit late, five minutes on a very encouraging text. Second, we must also recognize that our spiritual development rests on God's empowerment. Okay, if you're taking notes, there's some blanks here. We must recognize that our spiritual development rests on God's empowerment. Look with me at verse 23. It says, Now may the God of, uh, God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Here in these verses, I believe that Paul is stressing God's part in sanctification. God's part in spiritual growth. And he does so through the form or in the form of a prayer that he prays. You can see that very clearly with uh, the first words, may our God. And then later on, and may God. In verse 23, and, or, and may your whole spirit, soul, body. This is a prayer from the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul is, I think, wrapping up the letter. He's giving a closing. And in the closing, Paul will often appeal to God the Father, especially when it comes to peace, I noticed. Every, every time in a closing, when Paul is appealing for peace or well-being, he will address God the Father. This text, he is the God of all well-being. That's who Paul's praying to. Later on, when he talks about grace, by the way, in every Pauline text, he appeals to the person of Jesus Christ. The grace is coming from Jesus Christ. Peace, well-being from God the Father. So in this passage, he's talking about God the Father's role in sanctification. He also describes the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end. I think what Paul's doing here is he's envisioning one day believers, persons in resurrected bodies who are <clears throat> perfect and blameless at the coming of the day of the Lord. Paul is praying for the Thessalonians to not only be sanctified completely, but to stand blameless and perfect, whole spirit, soul, and body, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at his coming. Of course, the only way that that is possible, that Paul could be confident like this in prayers, is because of verse 24. 
gives a reason, I think, why he's confident he thinks this will happen. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so as, as Paul's describing the way we relate to God the Father in, in the behavior or lifestyles that we live, I think the point that he's making here is that God's faithfulness secures our ultimate sanctification one day in heaven when the Lord Jesus returns. For sake of time, I won't go through it all, but I think that the faithfulness of God to work in believers' lives is a very important part of Paul's theology. All throughout his epistles, you could read about God's faithfulness to us. God is the one who will do this. So Paul's prayer informs us that behavior worthy of God requires God's enablement. That's why he prays for it. Remember several years ago watching something in the Olympics that I thought gave me a great picture of God's love and care for us. It was a 400-meter race, and there was a runner by the name of Derek Redman from Great Britain. So he's running in this race. He was doing pretty well through 100 meters. But then he, uh, had a, he, he developed a torn hamstring. And you can just see it as you're watching. And while the camera kind of spanned ahead to the top three finishers, there was someone who captured what actually happened with Derek. Okay? And so he fell to the ground in pain. And, but what happened next to me was a great picture of God's faithfulness and love for us in sanctification. Derek's father, who was in the stands, busted through security, ran out onto the track, put his arm over Derek's shoulder, picked him up, and led him forward so that he could finish the race. This story forms a good analogy for the way that God watches and cares for us in our sanctification. Left to ourselves, there's no way any one of us could do these five things before this. But we have a Father. So perhaps you're here today and you're weary and discouraged in your walk with God in some areas of sanctification. Perhaps you feel like you cannot keep on going in your Christian life, you need to realize that you have a loving Father who has all-seeing eyes. He never takes His eyes off of you. He will sustain you and strengthen you. And in the end, you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There's one other point of application I want to make. I think this is good for us, this passage. But it's also good for those people that we love and care for. And I want you to consider for a moment what Paul does at the end of this letter. He stops and he prays to the one that he knows will help the Thessalonian believers endure. Do you have confidence in prayer like Paul to say, God is faithful? I know he will do it. Let me ask you a few questions, personal questions. Do you spend more time worrying about someone's growth in sanctification than you do praying for it? 
we need to pray like the Apostle Paul. God, God of peace, will you do this? Will you keep them? Will you perfect them? Do you spend more time talking about the shortcomings of someone that you love than you do praying for them about it? Do you have the confidence in God that he will complete the work that he started at their conversion? Do you believe this and do you go to him and confess that to him? Behavior worthy of God requires his enablement. So, let's make sure, Colonial Baptist, we pray for him to do it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what this text tells us about the need for divine enablement and spiritual growth. Lord, help none of us to quench the Spirit by hating something that you're doing. And when we examine or test all things, help us not to quench the Spirit of God by accepting the evil simply because someone holds it. Someone thinks it's justifiable practice or theory or idea. But Lord, help us to use our Bibles, to know our Bibles, so that we could examine what is true and what is not, and hold to what is right, what is scriptural, and reject what is wrong regardless of its implications for our lives. And then, Father, we're just so grateful for verses 23 and 24. Thank you that we have a loving, heavenly Father who never takes his eyes off of us, who provides enablement in our spiritual walk with God and who's always there to care, not only for us, but for those that we love, who know you. And so, Father, I pray that this text would be an encouragement to people in our assembly who are worried about or talking about the spiritual struggles of people that they care so much for. Lord, may they, like the Apostle Paul, be less concerned to talk and to worry over these things, but to pray that the one who does sanctification would do it. That you would enable, that you would present them perfectly sanctified one day in spirit, soul, and body, presented blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have a faithful God who works and enables. I pray our confidence would grow in prayer to the one who can change any heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.